before you open your handout and freak out, uh, some words of explanation. Um, you come to a story like this that is so popular. Um, and for me, and, and maybe you wonder if it, you know, we, we know this story, so why read the whole thing? And I think uh, that's part of the answer is that's precisely why we need to read the whole thing. To feel the weight of the story because there's weightiness. There's a reason why this story has stuck out as one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. Um, and I want us to feel the weightiness and maybe hopefully get past a little bit of the familiarity of it. You know, I said last week that I want us, as we explore the life of David, uh, to avoid building our spiritual castles in the air, right? I, I don't want us, to, I, I want to avoid, and I'm not going to say that I'm going to be perfect at avoiding this. I want to avoid just kind of swooping in on these stories and kind of picking the things that are, that are good to talk about and going with them. Um, and the, there's just a ton of different angles and applications you can get with this story especially. Uh, and in a way tonight, I want the story to speak for itself. We believe that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, the author of Hebrews tells us. We believe, uh, God says in Isaiah uh, 55, that his word goes out, um, and as the rain produces seed time and harvest, so shall his word be that goes out from his mouth, it will not return to him void. So I'm not going to try... I'm, I'm being honest with you, I'm not going to try to go too deep tonight. We're going to read the passage in its entirety, and it's going to take a few minutes. Um, and then I'm going to hit some highlights to hopefully help you process it. That's my, that's my promise to you, okay? So, if you would, read along with me, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I'm going to try to read a little fast. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah in Eph's Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in, a line, in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze and his head on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. And he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle. And am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest 
sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in that valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with him, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and, make, um, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him and toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, They repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took, took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philist- this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put the helmet of bronze on his head and helmet uh, clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried to go in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for, for I've not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and he came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. And like I said, there's a lot here. And so I want to hit the highlights and leave those with you. uh, And you can be on your way. So three points as you see them kind of broken up there over the passage um, in your handout. And the first is verses 1 through 12. We see for Israel the apparent problem. The apparent problem. Problem. Well, what is the apparent problem? Well, it's a freakish giant, right? Um, but let's catch some context here. First, uh, the Philistines, maybe if you grew up in Sunday school, you grew up hearing about the Philistines, right? But just the context of the book of 1 Samuel, the Philistines have kind of been this continual enemy of um, the Israelites throughout this book before they had King Saul. Then Saul becomes king, and so Saul begins leading Israel out against the Philistines, and they kind of just go back and forth a lot. They just kind of maybe kind of like Palestine and Israel in present day. They're just they're going back and forth here and there, and it's going to continue when David becomes king, uh, he's going to have to deal with them also. But two, remember, if you weren't here last week or if you were, last week we looked at 1 Samuel 16. We're privy in 1 Samuel 16 to a scene in the story that no one else knows about save Jesse, this man Jesse and his family. We see that the prophet Samuel goes to Jesse the Bethlehemite, goes over all of his sons and anoints the youngest, the runt of the group, David. Right? No one expected. And we read in that story that God tells Samuel, Samuel comes into Jesse's house. He looks at Eliab, the tallest, the most well-looking, qualified of the sons, and says, this must be the Lord's anointed. And we get God saying this to Samuel, do not look on the outward appearance or the height of his stature, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so we get that story. Life goes back to normal pretty much, we find it here. David's still out in the fields. Um, Saul is still king, leading Israel into battle. 
But lo and behold, we get the next chapter, chapter 17, we have the army of Israel and its king quaking in their boots at what? The outward appearance of a warrior and the height of his stature. I told you this theme would continue as we looked at it last week. That, and this isn't a coincidence that we get this right after what we read in 16. So, just to think about Goliath, this guy had to be a, a spectacle, okay? There had to be a reason that all these people were deathly afraid of him, okay? We guesstimate that he, given the measurements of the day, that he was somewhere around nine feet tall, maybe more than nine feet tall, okay? His armor would have weighed some 125 plus pounds, Okay, that's a lot. Um, the head of his spear would have weighed some 20 plus pounds. Okay, that's, that weighs, that's more than your head. Okay, it's big. The apparent problem is this freakish warrior giant who wants to kill everybody. And apparently everybody in the army of Israel is quaking in their boots. Then we get Saul, right? Verse 11 there. Uh, Saul and all Israel heard these words and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul, dismayed with all the rest of them. Okay, Saul, who when he became king, twice in the book of Samuel, we are told that Saul stood a head above all the Israelites. If there was one man in the entire camp of Israel who was qualified to go out and meet this giant, it was Saul. But he's nowhere to be found As far as the front lines go, he's shivering and he's a coward just like the rest of them. So here it is. We see the apparent problem, the giant. But what it actually he does, Goliath actually does, is he actually serves to reveal the real problem. A faithless and hopeless people led by a faithless and hopeless king. That is the real problem here. That is the message of the chapter. It's the message of those 12 verses as far as the author of Samuel is concerned. A faithless and hopeless people led by a faithless and hopeless king. And what does it lead to? It leads to a whole army and its king being so focused on one man. He was formidable. Okay. He wasn't nothing. He was formidable. But one man, so focused on one man that they're utterly hopeless. And we talked about this last week, and so I don't want to spend too much time about, about being enslaved to appearances. We're enslaved to what's on the surface. We're enslaved to what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch. We think that is what rules our lives, right? But what chapter 17 swings the door wide open for us is actually the root of that problem. And the consequences as well. And the root is that it actually emanates this problem of being so stuck on the surface, on the appearance, on the external of things, of situations, of circumstances, of desires, all these things. The root of it it actually emanates from something deep within our own selves. There's actually something inside of us that is causing that. And it leads Israel in the valley of Elah that day. All they can see in front of them is utter destruction. They can see nothing else. That is the problem. Right? It's kind of interesting from Genesis 3. If you start at the beginning of the Bible and read all the way up to 1 Samuel 17. You'll see a theme that repeats itself over and over. We are prone to deal. People are prone to deal with things only at the surface, only with the external. We let that rule us. Just here's a few highlights. Adam and Eve, right? They are created as the crown of creation. God, the maker himself, communes with them in the garden. 
But they want the fruit, right? And as soon as they do that, they plunge themselves and creation into death and decay. And what do they do? They hide. (laughs) Find that funny? They hide from the maker of heaven and earth. Like the guy who made everything. They're going to hide from him. And they see their nakedness. And what do they do? They sow fig leaves and cover it, right? Abraham. Abraham is given the great promise in Genesis 15. That I'm going to give you a land. And that you are going to be a great nation. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to make you a great people there. And, the, and your, uh, your offspring will be a blessing to the nations. But if you read the Abraham story, we have Abraham traveling through Egypt and he gets scared of Pharaoh and he nearly sells his wife to Pharaoh. So, oh, no, no, she's just my sister. Then later on, he has an Ill- illegitimate child because he's tired of waiting for God. Israel in the wilderness, if you're familiar with the Exodus story at all, God miraculously saves Israel, right? And as soon as they're in the wilderness, what do they do? They freak out because they think they're going to starve. You remember that story? We are prone to deal with things at the surface, only with the external, and it is to our peril. This is why David is so refreshing in the story, right? Um, Because he comes on the scene, and he kind of just looks at the giant and says, Who is this big idiot? Why is everybody afraid? And for David, it's just kind of like, what's the big deal in a sense? So what, and, and for, in a sense, we're like, okay, how can all these men be like that? But David kind of come in cool and collected. Well, for David, his mind and his life is so enraptured with the living God that the giant for him is somebody who just needs to be put in his place. But for Saul and Israel, circumstances and what is right in front of their face has become so uh, defining for them that the God, the maker of heaven and earth who promised to be on their side, he's nowhere in their thought process. And so they look at the battlefield and they say, we are doomed. When you think about it for yourself, when suffering and trial come, you find out what your faith is really in. Do you not? When life gets hard, you find out what you're really living for, do you not? When you can't come up with the answer, you really find out what it is you think will will save you, do you not? It's kind of an example I kind of came up with. Maybe maybe you are one that you're trying. You want to live your life in light of the will of God. That's that's um, that's the traje- that's what you want the traje- trajectory of your life to be. But then you get in college, and then what happens when classes aren't going the way you want them to? Grades aren't panning out the way you want them to. Work is not panning out the way that I want it to. What, what is it? What is it when you? What if you really do make the wrong choice that paralyzed you for so long? And then you're forced with the question, right? What is my faith in? Is my faith in God's will for my life? Or is my faith actually in my ability to follow through with it? What is it that, what is it your default when things fall apart? What is your default when things in front of you are beyond your control? Do you freak out? Let's be honest. Do you shut down? Do you shut out? What is your faith really in? What Israel found in the Valley of Elah is that what they were trusting in could not save them, and they panicked. Okay? And they could not see any hope. Let's move on to the second one here. Well, then David comes onto the scene. 
So thank God for David. But with David, we get this apparent weakness. The entire passage, if you've kind of felt it, it builds on David's apparent weakness. We have his oldest brother, Eliab, telling him he's just a punk. We have Saul telling him he's too young. We have Goliath telling him, you're puny, right? There's a reason that this story sticks out as one of the most well-known Bible stories. uh, Because it's fantastical to... Eve, that a little shepherd boy comes out to the battlefield and slays the most formidable giant in the whole arena. Okay? That's, that's, it doesn't make sense. It's unbelievable. But look at how, look at how these people are handling it. First, look at, look at verse 25, how Saul apparently has come up with a solution. If you go out and slay the giant for old King Saul, what do you get? You get money, you get his daughter, and you get no taxes. Okay? Things have really changed a lot in 3,000 years, haven't they? Money, sex, and fame. That's what he's offering, right? Um, that's what Saul thinks is going to whip up the courage amongst his men. Um, then we get David. You look over where David is finally, verse 31 and following, when David's finally in front of Saul. Okay, Saul finally agrees to let David go fight, but not without first fitting him with all his armor and his weapons. I kind of have this idea. You all watch the Christmas story every Christmas, right? You know when the mom wraps up the youngest son in the clothes and he can't, well, he can't put his arms down? And it's like, I get this picture of David that, I don't know, I guess he wouldn't have had that on, but um, he's just kind of flapping. He doesn't know what to do. But see, um, when you and I, when we live our lives enslaved to the surface, enslaved to the external, only going surface deep, we, were, we are going to find that our, that our solutions to our problems... They only go surface deep. And they never go further. Again, Adam and Eve, they sin against their maker, the one who made them for himself. Their sin brings the shame of their nakedness. And so what do they do? They sew fig leaves together, right? God won't notice. Yeah, wait, no, that doesn't fix the problem. Every, but see, the thing, everything Saul tries makes sense. You've got an army full of men. Give him a woman and money. That should get somebody, right? You would think. Um, it makes sense. I mean, I've got this. Okay, I've got a guy that wants to go out. So let me put my armor on him. He would have had the best armor and the best weapons in the whole army. It makes sense. But that's what makes it dangerous. Because we do the same thing. Constantly soaring, pouring surface solutions on deep problems. Soul deep problems. You know, okay. This may or may not be you, but... Uh, you're going to resolve yourself. Okay, sexual purity, that is something I'm going to strive after, but why? Why? Well, I'm, you're going to look at the things that you've, maybe, maybe your past, maybe the things you're stuck in now, and you're going to say, my future marriage is at stake, my future sex life is at stake. That's true. Um, you're going to say, but I cannot bear the shame of this anymore. I am so embarrassed. What if someone found out? And you're going to beat yourself up, right? And you're going to resolve yourself. I'm just going to, I'm going to stop this right now, but it never lasts. You shamed yourself, you know, you know the guilt, you know the embarrassment, and you've, you've resolved, but it never lasts. You always end up right back where you were. Or you, you're, you've, you've, you've got this endless cycle where you say, I'm finally going to get my stuff together now. I'm finally going to get it together. I'm really going to start praying every day. I'm really going to start reading my Bible. And so you beat yourself up and you start yet another new year where you are really going to do it again. And then just a few weeks, right, goes by. And you don't even have the energy to shame yourself to pick, to pick it up worth trying again. And we look at all these surface things that we try to fix and we say, why can't I fix this? 
Why can't I do anything about this? Why are my solutions worthless? But then again, that's where David, again, is the refreshing part of the story. This isn't a dare to be a David, but David is there for our instruction, for our example. He's a man after God's own heart. And he's so refreshing. You look at verses 34 through 37, where he begins talking to Saul. Saul has doubted his ability, uh, doubted his um, experience to be able to go and do what he said he's going to do. And you look at verse 37. He says, Saul, the Lord delivered me from the paw of a lion, from the paw of a bear. He'll deliver me here. You say, He looks at it and he says, the Lord delivered me for a lamb. Don't you think he'll deliver me when the sake of his nation is at stake? Right? David doesn't say, David doesn't look at Saul and say, look, I'm tougher than I look. I can do this. No, he knows God is with him. David comes to the scene. This is why it's so refreshing for us. David comes to the scene and he brings a posture of complete dependence on God with him. That is what is oozing out of him. That is what makes him so attractive. David is attractive in the story. That is why we go away from the story saying, I should be more like David. Because it's beautiful. We see his trust, his confidence in what's happening here. And it looks foolish to everyone around him. Everyone around him thinks this is insane. It just doesn't make sense. But David was content to be who he was in light of who God was. And that is exactly what Saul and Israel completely did not have. Because God didn't fit anywhere in the equation for them. And so every solution that they had in life, in the face of this giant Goliath, fell apart. And so we ask the question, you look at David, it's worth asking yourself, what does it look like to believe that God has equipped me? For David, it looks like being content. To be content where I am. Yes, I've been anointed to be king. I should be king. I should be leading these armies out before you, Saul. David doesn't say that. David is content to be who he was from where he was with the past that he had. What does it look like to be content with where God has put us, with our past, with our experience? David easily could have said, you know what? I haven't had enough training. What am I going to do? No. You need to skip forward when he's with Goliath, verse... um, uh, 45 through 47 there. 45 through 47, Goliath scoffs at this boy that they've sent to fight him. Um, and we get this speech that David gives him. In verse 45, you come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then 47, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. This is the third speech of David in this chapter. The first time David speaks in the Bible is this chapter, and we get three speeches of his in this chapter. The author clearly leading his readers to listen and learn from David. That's what he's trying to get us to do. It does not make sense that the boy should prevail But what we end up seeing that it's precisely against the backdrop of human inadequacy, which is all over the place in this chapter, that the power of God pierces through the story. And it's exactly what the author wants us to see. The author wants to see this story doesn't make sense, but God was there and so it does. If that helps you. This is exactly what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 12. 
Uh, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh that he himself had and how he grieved over it and wrestled with it and tried to figure it out. And then he says this in verse, uh, verse 9 of Second Corinthians chapter 12. He says, but he said to me, being God, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The gospel way is the way of weakness. And it makes no sense. It looks foolish. It is completely counterintuitive to every impulse in your spirit and in your body. It's the way of service. It's the way of sacrifice. It's the way of being last instead of first. Where our inadequacy, our inability, actually ends up being shown to us as the precise thing that qualifies us for the kingdom of this God. That's what David brings to the table. And that's what we're led to see David bringing to the table for us. But... We look at that and we say, that sounds great and all, but how in the world could that be true? End with this, the apparent victory. The apparent apparent victory. So we get that improbable David slays the freakish giant. David versus Goliath then immortalized for all time, it seems. He cuts off his head and he carries it around. I don't know, for the guys, maybe that's a cool picture. I don't know. Um, I mean, seriously... I'm telling you, the more we read in this life of David, the more you're going to see there's no better sermon series title than Game of Thrones. I've never seen the show, but I get that it's kind of like this. She's walking around with the head of the giant. So we think David versus Goliath, that is what this story is about. Now look, again, like I said, there are so many different angles and pathways you can take with this passage. It's not improper to talk about the giants we face. It's, that's not improper. But it's not the focus Because look at verses 55 through 58. The story doesn't end with victorious David over slain Goliath. The story ends with David face to face with Saul. Okay? What's so remarkable about this passage from our point of view, from seeing the story as it's unfolded to this point, is that David shows up on the scene and does, I guess, what we expect him to do, and no one recognizes him as the true king. No one. No one's even looking for him. And at the end of the story, what we see is the real point, that real victory is that the true king is here. That's what we get. Real victory, the the people of God, as they first read this letter, the message to them was, real victory is here, because the true king is here. What does that have to do with that or us? Well, here it is. We see at the end, after he slays Goliath, right, that once cowering Israelites are now bounding after their enemies and chasing them down and defeating them. Okay? What did it? What is it that empowered them to face their giants? As it were. It's when they saw David. It's when they saw their true king. Who went and fought in their place. That their true king actually went out ahead of them. Into the valley. Face to face with the enemy. He stood in the middle and he did what none of them could do. 
He wins. He conquers. And his, vict- his victory, his victory becomes their victory. In other words, his victory is imputed to them. Because he wins, they win. And the story is, you win because the true king has already won. Again, we're just kind of flying through this, but this is what I just want to leave, with you, leave you with. This is how the author of Hebrews kind of takes up this idea of heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And this is what he says. This is one of the most remarkable passages in all of Scripture. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their uh, dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about with skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. Then to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. What are you going to do with that? That is what this chapter is begging of us. Your king has gone before you. He has won the battle. And it is yours. We have this problem of eternal significance. But the solution is completely counterintuitive. That the way to win. That the way to live. That the way to face the giants. Is to live in the reality of the victory that's already been won. What are you going to do with that? That's where I leave you tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's, it's hard to look at a story like this and know even where to begin. But we see so many things that are true of us. And we see so many things that we wish were true of us. We see the quaking, we see the consternation, we see the destitution and the despair. We know it all too well. We see the true king who goes before his people and wins the battle. And though we've heard the story and we've been told it's true, we don't know what that looks like in our lives. Would you help us? Would you open our eyes? Would you give us hearts to believe that we do have a true king? In Jesus, it's his name we pray, amen.